Welcome to the Parenting Well podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, your host, and today you're listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising healthy, happy youth is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, credible information, tools, and strategies. This leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. So let's fill that well. Today's well source is Rachel Bailey. Rachel is a parenting specialist who has been serving families for over a decade. Besides being a mother of two, she also has a master's degree in clinical psychology, a certification in positive discipline, and has provided services as an ADHD coach, in-home mentor, and therapist. Through her podcast, The Parenting Long Game, Programs and Services, Rachel teaches parents how to reduce negative interactions and drama for a more calm and peaceful home. So let's fill that well. Why don't we start with just tell us what you mean by creating a calm and peaceful home? What does that look like? That's a great question because it's not, uh, when I say calm and peaceful home, I don't mean that everything is going well all the time at all. In fact, I specialize in helping parents who are raising kids with big emotions, big reactions, whether it's a child who's strong-willed or a child who's anxious or a child who's sensitive, all of whom feel things strongly. Um, so, So when I talk about calm and peaceful, I actually don't mean that things aren't you know, a little chaotic. What I mean is that parents are not getting sucked into the chaos and that they actually have the strategies to help motivate better behavior, moods, and attitudes in their children. So calm and peaceful is really like, even if there's a little chaos going on or a lot of chaos going on, I know how to handle it. And I feel confident that I can actually help my child learn how to get through this situation too. Mm, I love that. And I actually really like that you brought up different ways that that can look. Intense emotions doesn't necessarily mean that they're running around crazy. It can mean that they just take everything really to heart. It can mean a lot of different things. So that's, that's really great. Um, What I'm hearing and what you're saying is that it is really important for parents to be able to regulate their own emotions so that they can then provide an environment where their children learn how to do the same. That's exactly right. And it's not that we don't teach kids tools for resilience. I mean, I I do lots of presentations for companies and schools, and I talk about resilience in kids all the time. The first step is us, though. Absolutely. And that's hard because I'm not personally a resilient person by nature. I had to learn how to do all this on my own. Of course. Well, and emotions are a complicated thing. So I, I envision, you know, I've raised a couple of kids myself, and there's times when there's times when you can do that. And then there's times when your day has been really challenging and it's a lot harder to do that. And so I think it can be a gift to parents to give themselves grace and understand that I'm not going to do this perfect. Um, And when I don't do this well, what would you recommend for parents if they're just having a rough day? So first of all, I will say that that is me. Like I'm not a calm, patient, kind, wonderful, you know, I'm not, that's not my personality. I do have more hard days probably because I'm myself, I'm highly sensitive. I'm anxious myself. So that's why I love doing what I do because I'm not someone who says, oh, it should be so easy to regulate yourself at all. Like if you have a hard day, just take a couple of deep breaths. That would not work for me. So what we actually have to do is be a little bit more conscious of it, understanding where I have this term called yuck and yuck is a term I use to describe any type of discomfort that we're in. So when we have a day full of yuck, we just have to know how to handle it. So we're not taking it out on our kids because guess what? Our kids are going to have days full of yuck and we need to know how to model it for them so that they can also 
um, learn how to do it as well. Otherwise, we're just controlled by our emotions and no one wants to be that way. Not that emotions are bad. They should guide us. They shouldn't control us. Yeah, that's a great way to say that. Um, and I know that myself, when I've made mis- what I would consider a mistake mm-hmm. um, in the way I responded, I've often gone back and and said, this, is, this was been a really hard day for me, and I'm sorry I didn't handle myself as well as I probably could have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a good thing to model, too, so that our kids don't feel like they're supposed to be perfect, that they that's have to get it all really right. really true, because I was actually a therapist for many years for teens, and I worked with teens with eating disorders. And what was interesting was that one of the common themes was that they thought their parents were perfect so that they had to be perfect. So to me, it's actually a red flag if we try to be perfect in front of our kids, because then kids think, oh, my parents are perfect. I must have to be perfect, or that's the way it's supposed to be, and I'm not. So that's actually a problem. No, we need to be very real with our kids. And that's why I'm glad I have big emotions, just like my own kids do, and why I can teach other kids, because we can learn how to have a day full of yuck and still get through the day without spewing our yuck on everybody else. Yeah, I've got a question that I thought of while you were talking. Would you say that for someone who has big emotions, that as they get older, when they're teenagers, when they're young adults, are better able to identify other people's emotions? Are they more emotionally intelligent oftentimes, or is there any kind of correlation there at all? They are often more emotionally intelligent. Although what I will say, it starts with they're more emotionally perceptive. They feel other people's emotions. They notice. So kids with big emotions, again, and this could be kids who are like, more strong-willed and loud with their emotions, or it could be kids who are quieter with their emotions. So anyone who feels strongly, they perceive and they notice other people's emotions. And often they are naturally emotionally intelligent and know what to do about that. Some kids who perceive other people's emotions and notice them, we have to teach them what to do with that. But generally, yeah, they are bigger perceivers and noticers of other people's emotions and their own emotions, even if they don't know how to handle them maturely. Well, it's, it's all skills, right? And so They're not going to come out of the womb knowing how to handle that. We have to guide them and teach them, walk them through that. That's exactly right. And their brains are not, that's a, it's what we call an executive functioning skill to be able to regulate our emotions. And the executive functioning skills in the human brain don't come into play until the mid twenties. So they're not fully developed until the mid twenties. So kids and teens, they don't have fully functioning executive functioning skills like emotional regulation. They just don't know how to do it. Yeah. Right. But that kind of brings me to the conversation about behavior, because Mm -hmm. I think that when we have kids that are highly emotional, that can influence, of course, how they react or behave in certain situations. And as parents, we're taught, well, just set good boundaries and be calm and loving. And it can sound, um, I don't want to say trite, but it's certainly a lot harder to do than it is to say. And it's even more hard when you have a child that's really highly emotional. So Yeah, how do parents find that balance? How do you strike the balance of, of discipline? So one of the things I will say about kids with big emotions is that they actually need boundaries, they need structure, and they need parents who can be who can follow through. The more we have those boundaries, we're able to follow through. Like if we say, um, even something as simple as, hey, get your shoes on. But then we go and do something with another child and we don't check to see if they got their shoes on. That's actually hard for a child with big emotions. They need to know we mean what we say. So there's that piece of it. But we also have to recognize that kids who feel things strongly are affected by the boundaries that we set. 
So even as we're setting them and being firm, we have to recognize how it affects them and help them deal with those feelings. So just telling them, go get your shoes on without understanding that maybe we barked at them and they didn't like our tone or, um, you know, we're expecting something of them that they're struggling with at that moment. We, we, that doesn't mean we change our boundaries. It just means we have to think about how it's affecting them and help mm. them through that. Mm-hmm. And just cognitively, they're not as advanced. And so when they hear something, the way they perceive it might not be the way that we as parents think they're going to perceive it when we say it. So there's so much involved here in just being aware, paying attention. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and there are yeah. some ways to simplify that because I would hate parents to think, oh my gosh, I have to be aware of this and aware of that and aware of this and aware of that. There's just some simple things that I teach parents that if you're just aware of these, you know, basic ideas then you're, you're, you don't have to think of everything all the time. You just have to be aware of a, a few things and that will come up over and over. Yeah. Right. Well, while you're saying that, let's go into what some of those things might be. Yeah. So I would say that we have to be aware, especially for with kids with big emotions, we have to be aware of um, our tone is one of the things that we want to be aware of. Um, for kids who are strong-willed, if they feel controlled, they're going to rebel. For kids who are sensitive, if they feel like they did something wrong, they're going to shut down. So just our tone. And again, you kind of need to know what type of child, because I do work with all three types, strong-willed, anxious, and sensitive, what type of child you have. But once you know that, you can know that your tone will affect them. The other thing is just making sure they know how to do what you ask. For example, something as silly as getting your shoes on. Believe it or not, some kids, when they're in the middle of doing something else, they have trouble transitioning from what they're doing to going to get their shoes on. Or they have trouble... Um, what we call task initiation. They have trouble starting something. So they're sitting there doing something else. We say, get your shoes on, but they have trouble going over and getting their shoes on. So we need to know, we need to be aware of our tone. We need to be aware of what skills they truly have. And then we just need to be aware of ourselves and our presence in that moment. So it's just a few things that cover about 98% of behavior. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. With all of these different kinds of um, big emotion children, drama seems like it could be a big part of interactions. So what does drama look like and how do you navigate those kinds of situations? So what I would say is that usually what causes drama is when someone is in yuck, they're in some sort of, so as a parent, we're frustrated, we're tired, we're overwhelmed, we had a long day, we're in some sort of yuck. And when our brain senses some sort of discomfort or yuck, we go into fight or flight. And what usually causes the drama is our fight or flight behavior. Mm -hmm. For example, we're frustrated, so we yell. Our yelling puts our children into fight or flight. And when they're in fight or flight, then maybe they don't listen. So we say, just go get your shoes on. We have to go to soccer practice because we're frustrated because they're not getting their shoes on. We yell and that affects them in some way. Their fight or flight response kicks in. And depending on the type of child you have, either they rebel or they shut down. And that creates more yuck for us, which creates more yuck for them. So generally what creates drama is when one or more people have gone into fight or flight because they're in yuck. So one of the main things I teach parents is how to stay out of fight or flight. And it is not about willpower. A lot of parents will say, well, Rachel, I I use all my energy not to to stay calm, not to get sucked in, but, but I just eventually get, and that's a sign that you're using willpower. What I actually teach them to do is stop seeing their child's behavior as a threat When you don't see them not putting their shoes on as a threat, you actually don't go into fight or flight. So I teach how to not go into fight or flight, how to not see it as a threat. So you don't create that whole cycle of what I call the cycle of yuck, where one person's fight or flight behavior is uh, creating another person's. 
That makes sense. Emotions, you know, are something that we bounce off of each other, right? We go, we respond based on the way someone responded to us, which I think that when we talk about conflict, let's go into what it looks like when things get really hairy. Like there's not just some upset or some disagreeing, but you're in in true conflict. How do you diffuse that? So here's what I will say, talking a little bit more about yuck and fight or flight. So for me, when I say yuck, it's just, we felt something uncomfortable. Brain has sensed that as a threat. We go into fight or flight. And basically once someone is in fight or flight, they are, they have to do what I call traveling the yuck curve. So once someone's in fight or flight, their, their behavior is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So imagine like a rainbow shape, their yuck, their behavior is going to get bigger and bigger. It's going to reach a peak and it's going to come down. So when there is a huge conflict, maybe you just told your child they can't go to their friend's house because they didn't do their homework. Their yuck is going to get bigger and bigger. Their yuck behaviors where they're saying, I hate you. You're the worst ever. It's going to get bigger and bigger, reach that peak and come down. Now, what we as parents need to know is that there's not that much we can do when they're on that yuck curve to make things better. What causes these huge power struggles and conflict is where we try to make them stop when they're on the curve. Mm -hmm. We say, you can't talk to me like that. Oh, you think you hate me now? Imagine that just makes things worse. So what we need to realize is when a child is on that yuck curve, when they're dysregulated, they're in fight or flight, we actually need to let them just travel the curve. We need to let them, because that's actually a natural process. Mm. They'll get their yuck out. They'll release it. And we all know what happens once a child has released their yuck, what their behavior becomes. They become sweet and cooperative, or they act like nothing ever happened. But once they travel that curve, that's when things are approachable again. We just spend so much time trying to battle someone when they're on the yuck curve. And this isn't just parenting either. This is with marriages. This is with any relationship. When someone is in yuck, We have to stop trying to make them change. The problem is we're also in yuck at the time. And our solution to our yuck is to make someone else change, which creates those battles. This reminds me a little bit. I have a way that I think about anger, which is that anger is a fan. When the fan is going, you can't just turn it off and then you're done. You you have to go through the process of letting the fan slow down until the fan finally stops. (laughs) that's exact. that's actually the fight or flight response is a neurological it's a physiological process that happens in your nervous system so your brain actually has to sense okay i'm safe and then everything has to be shut off like that fight or flight response like you said it has to turn the other way and everything has to shut off so it does take some time you're right it's like a fan slowing down yep yeah well and i think that the basis of your relationship parent-child relationship is so important that when you already have the foundation set where you have mutual respect, you um, you have some rules or boundaries around how you communicate, like we don't interrupt each other, uh, those kinds of things. Maybe this falls a little bit into the, when you were talking about resilience, but do you feel like there are very specific things that parents can do, not when we're talking about when they're in fight or flight or anything major is going on, but just in the way that they interact with their children on a day-to-day basis yeah. that will set them up for success when things are difficult? A hundred percent. And I really will, I'll tell you what they are. And I have some really simple, very actionable suggestions, but I want to start by saying you're absolutely right that that foundation is important because when one human is being approached by another human, so your child, you're approaching your child, your child's brain is actually calculating, is this person safe or not? Because we're survival creatures by nature. So your child is seeing you approach saying, are they safe or not? If we have a strong foundation, when you approach them, they're much less likely to go into fight or flight. But for a lot of kids, when they see their parents, they're thinking, oh, they're going to yell at me. They're going to tell me to do my homework. They're going to. And so the initial reaction that a child has is to start to protect and defend and and their behavior shows that. 
So that, that foundation is super important. So I teach how to do this by something I call deposits. And deposits are not just what kids want, they're what kids need. And I differentiate that tremendously. So let me give you some examples of what deposits are. It's not just spending time with your child. It's something like um, asking your child about something they care about. And I always say it's even more of a deposit if you ask them about something they know that you don't care about, but they do. Like ask them about a video game. They know you don't care about their video game, but just asking them shows, hey, no, I don't care about your video game, but I care about you and you like it, so I'm gonna ask you. That's one way. Another way is to defer to them as an expert. So ask them about something that you know they're good at. So let's say they play baseball, saying, hey, my friend's daughter is about to start baseball too. Can you give me some tips that I can tell my friend? So these are examples of deposits where you're like seeing your child. You're showing them that they have value to add to conversations. These are needs that humans have that when we are making these, I call these deposits or micro deposits, it just all of a sudden makes us feel a lot safer because we're going to make withdrawals. We need to be making more deposits as well. Those are great suggestions uh, and simple. Like you said, that's something you can do day to day. Exactly. By definition, I describe deposits as something you can do in like 30 seconds or less. Yeah. Right. Of course, as a parent educator, I look back at like what that whole process was like for me and for them. And oftentimes it's the small things. It's really, truly the little things that you did to show up for them and make them feel seen and understood. That's exactly right. That is one of the main keys making them feel seen. And that does not mean giving them what they want. And a lot of parents will um, be confused about the two, buying them things and being nice to them and changing your boundaries. That's what they want. That's not what they need. And in fact, the more we give kids what they want, the more entitled they become, the more we give them what they need, which is basically seeing them. So one example would be, let's say you say you're in a store, you told your child that you weren't going to buy them anything, but they really want you to buy them a pair of jeans that they saw. Giving them what they want would be, fine, I'll buy you those jeans. Giving them what they need would be, no, I'm not buying you those jeans, but you can tell me why you like them so much. And then, you know, maybe we can put them on your Christmas list another time or your birthday list or something, maybe. But just seeing that that matters to them instead of saying, I'm not buying you anything. I told you I wasn't buying anything. Just seeing, yeah, no wonder you want those jeans. Those look pretty cool. That is seeing a child. It's giving them what they need, not what they want. So one of the questions I love to ask, and it's related to what we're talking about right now, is how can parents or people who work with young people show up, best show up for their children? Like, what would you say is the most critical thing in terms of how people show up for their kids? I, I actually ha have to be honest that there are two. So it's hard for me to, yeah. these are the two big ones. Okay. Number one, we have to take care of ourselves. And I, I mean, I know it's so cliche. To, I actually differentiate self-care from self-treatment, not just are we doing bubble baths and manicures and all that, but how do we treat ourselves? Do we set boundaries? Do we talk to ourselves with respect? Because the better we treat ourselves, that allows us to show up for our kids. If we're in a place we're not treating ourselves well, we won't be able to show up for our kids. That's the first one. And the second one is we have to start to see behaviors, moods, and attitudes differently. If we see them as something that's bad, that needs to be punished, that, oh my gosh, you can't talk to me like that when you're upset. We can't show up for our children because we are in fight or flight. If we realize that a child being disrespectful is simply a sign that their yuck is bigger than their coping skills, they have a lot of yuck in that moment and they don't have great coping skills, that's all it is. When we start seeing that differently, we reduce the threat in our own brain, then we can show up for our kids. So it's really how we treat ourselves and how we view our children are the two best things we can do to show up mm. for our kids. 
when I was doing my PhD program, I wrote a program for dads to parent after divorce. And one of the big things that I took away from that whole project was that a child knows that they came from these two people. And the thing they want more than anything in the world is to be loved and accepted for who they are from both of these people. And so I think that related to what you said is that if we see a child's behavior as they're doing what they're supposed to do at that age, they're learning, they're challenging, they're pushing you, they're they're modeling what you do, whatever it is. If we see it as this is part of normal development, it doesn't yeah. say something is wrong with them for being a certain way, then we can respond differently. And our kids' feelings about themselves, the way they grow into who they are and their own self-esteem is completely changed from 100%. someone who's judged. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it really, remember I was talking earlier about then we don't go into fight or flight. When we see this is a, that's one of the strategies I actually give parents, normalize behavior. This is normal. And even if your child is, let's say your child is 12 and they're still, um, you know, tantruming, you're like, oh, that's not normal, Rachel. How can you say that's normal? It's normal if they still don't have the, if they have a lot of yuck and don't have the coping skills, it is normal. Once we reduce the yuck and increase the coping skills, they won't do that anymore. So normalizing behavior is huge for us not to go into fight or flight. And it makes a huge impact, as you said, on self-esteem. That's actually one of my areas of clinical expertise is self-esteem. And I will just reiterate what you just said. It makes a huge difference in self-esteem. I think self-esteem is an important one. And I think it's very abstract for parents to think about how do I build self-esteem? So since you brought that up, is there any other things you want to share about what does that look like? I could talk about self-esteem for hours and hours. So I will simplify it, just give you very briefly. It is actually, uh, there are two major components of self-esteem that when we think about it like this, it does at least tell us what action to take. First component of self-esteem, you actually alluded to it, is a genuine belief that we are worthy of acceptance as we are. Not if we're nice, not if we're behaving, not if we're getting good grades, not if we're funny or pretty, but we are worthy of acceptance as we are. That's the first component. So how we talk to our children helps them determine if they're worthy of acceptance as they are. And that doesn't mean being permissive at all, because permissiveness does not lead to resilience. But we can set boundaries and still talk to our children with respect. The second part of self-esteem is a belief in our own capability. Like we can rely on ourselves. We know how to handle life. We know how to go through the challenges we face, either day-to-day or bigger challenges. So when a human being believes in our own worthiness as we are, and trust ourselves and knows we can, well, we know we can handle it. We have generally very healthy self-esteem. Thank you. That was really concise and easy. I love, I love your tips. I love the way you talk about things because it's stuff that we can go into our lives and we can do them. We don't have to learn something new or right. study for, for three months. We can just think through some of the things you shared. So it's really helpful. Um, is there anything that you would want to leave parents with today? Yeah, I would say that when parenting seems daunting, you want to just decide in that phase of your life where you are, that phase may last one day, one week, what is important to you at that moment? Because I feel like with parenting, there's so many things and I feel like we have to prioritize what matters to us at that moment and take action on that. Mm -hmm. I teach parents to create what I call a later list. Things that you might want to do, but you cannot do right now, because the more focused we are based on what's important to us at that moment for that week or for that month, the more we take action on that, we will actually start to feel a sense of accomplishment rather than thinking I'm not doing all of the things I need to do. So focus on one thing, baby steps, put everything else on a later list, and you will make more progress than if you're trying to do all of the things. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. I know that a lot of parents are going to get 
great value out of listening to some of the tips that you shared, practicing this. I think all of this takes practice, 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 right? <laughs> That's why I want to focus on one thing at a time. So we're not trying to practice yeah. everything. Yeah, exactly. The other thing is, is that this is not something that is just good for young people, you know, a small child that's running around or can't tell you what they think, but this is also very good for teenagers and young adults. You know, I would Absolutely, say that yeah. I, can... I work with, I don't even work with parents of young children anymore. I work with school age teenager and young adult and, and absolutely yeah. we still have the big emotions. They just look a little bit different. Yeah. Right. Bigger problems, right? <laughs> bigger kids, bigger problems. And Very more fun. scary for us. That's what it And more down. scary for us. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you again for being here. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, before we go, I just want to say a couple things. I'd like to put a shout out there for one of our biggest sponsors, uh, Premier Members Credit Union. They've been genuine supporters for years. And please check out our website. Go to www.penbv.org. On our website, you'll see not only the activities, um, educational sessions that we have going on this year, but there's also opportunities to get involved, to become a sponsor, a monthly donor, make a single donation, anything that you feel you're inspired to do. Uh, we also hope that today added to your parenting well and that the information that we shared here is going to support you in raising healthy, happy kids. So thank you so much. It was an honor to be with you today. And until next time, happy parenting.